welcome and thank you so much for being here this evening. I'm so, so excited for you to hear Dr. Mary Frances O'Connor um, share her presentation, Compassion and Caregiver. Um, as you can probably imagine, our series is several months in the making. And uh, when we think about putting this together, uh, we think about kind of coming up with a kind of a loose theme. And I feel as though it's, it's really, really timely right now for us to all be kind of reminded and have the ability to come back to the core of compassion. And being able to extend compassion to other people really begins with taking the time to provide care for ourselves, to be able to understand the ways in which we can learn how to be compassionate toward ourselves how to um, develop ways of being mindful, um, ways of being present with ourselves so that we can stay strong in our efforts to be able to extend compassion to others and to be strong in wanting to either hold strong or help to impact change um, that may be coming forward. When Mary Frances and I um, talked a few months ago for the first time, I heard all these amazing remarks about how fantastic and brilliant she is, and so I was so excited that she agreed to meet with me and talk about this. And I have to tell you, she um, she has such a, a wonderful um, embodiment of what it means to be compassionate. And her research and her ability to speak about her work comes from a deeply heartfelt place. So I know that you are going to come away this evening with that sense of feeling reconnected with yourselves. I want to share with you a little bit about her professional background, because I can tell you how amazing she is, and you'll feel that immediately. Let me tell you about her scholarship. So Dr. O'Connor's research focuses on understanding emotions, particularly those that include grief and bereavement. Her work includes the investigation of how the wide range of emotions that occur during the grieving process impact immunity, neurobiological responses, and the reactions of our nervous system. So those of us that have experienced loss or bereavement know that there's a very physical component to that. It's a big part of her work. Her research is guided by a belief that clinical science approaches to the experiences and physiology of grief can improve our psychological treatment of grief. And this is most relevant to the experience of complicated grief, a disorder that follows bereavement that's characterized by intense, persistent, and prolonged symptoms. Yearning is often described as the hallmark symptom of this disorder. And Dr. O'Connor's work focuses on a deeper understanding of the causes and effects of this particular emotion at both psychological and physiological levels. So the other piece that I will add, um, Dr. O'Connor is a professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Arizona. The Center for Compassion Studies is really delighted to work in a very interdisciplinary way. So we seek to bring perspectives on research around compassion from a variety of different perspectives. And so this is one perspective that we offer you this evening. Please enjoy. Thank you, Leslie. And thank you to TMC and the core. This is great space. Uh, 
I think this is an amazing space to have here um, and a great place to be able to gather and talk about ideas. Um, so I'm, I'm going to talk today about self-compassion and the caregiver and the clinician. And in many ways, by clinician, I mean the professional caregiver. So really, I'll probably say caregiver a lot. And I'll probably mean both, honestly. Caregivers in our families, caregivers for um, spouses, maybe with um, a debilitating disorder, caregiving for children, caregiving for parents um, who may be elderly, um, all sorts of caregiving that we do all the time. And hopefully, the same kind of caregiving that professional caregivers went into the profession in order to do, to care for their clients, their clergy, their um, um, uh, patients, their uh, all, all sorts of uh, categories you could name. But clinicians, I mean broadly. So doctors, nurses, um, physical therapists, chaplains, social workers, and so forth. I myself am trained as a psychologist, a clinical psychologist, um, and so I have both been a professional uh, clinician caregiver and also a caregiver um, in my family as well. And uh, so we'll uh, take a look from both of those perspectives. So the work that I do, as Leslie said, is primarily around bereavement, but of course there is the tragic difficult, emotional sequela that happens before bereavement, which is caregiving usually for someone who's terminally ill. Uh, and so we won't talk much about, actually much about my grief um, research tonight, but I'll be bringing you information about scientific understandings of compassion and caregiving. Um, some uh, meditation training understanding that I have, um, as well as how that has sort of fit in with um, a little bit of personal experience in the hope that you can also relate it to your own experience um, as well. So from the professional caregiver, this is a, um, a quote from a doctor working in palliative care. I'm up late admitting patients to the inpatient hospice unit just when I think I'm too old for these late nights without sleep. And this night, a sweet 36-year-old woman with her wildly catastrophic breast cancer speaks of her acceptance and her hope for her children. And she speaks with such authenticity and authority. And her acceptance comes to me as the deepest humility a person can experience. And then again, once again, I remember why I stay up these late nights and put myself in the company of the dying. And I like this quote because I think it gets to the real heart of why we do caregiving. We have this innate compassion to reach out to others who are in need. We have this desire to help those who we see around us who have not enough to go on. And so this, this doctor in describing this, I think really gives you the motivation piece of why he continues to do this, even at his age, as he describes. But I think it also reminds us how hard this work is. These are long hours. These are difficult emotions. These are difficult relationships sometimes. The physical work is hard. The mental work is hard. The emotional work is hard when we're caregiving in either a professional setting or in our family. And I think we can't lose sight of either of those. Um, and hopefully, 
can find a way uh, for compassion to be a part of caregiving that may help us have more energy, continue the important work that we're doing in all of those settings. I should also ask now that you've been listening to me for a minute, I've talked fairly loudly, but is anyone in need of the microphone, me using a microphone, which I'm totally happy to do, but no needs? Okay, good, good. So there are challenges when you're a caregiver to your well-being, whether that's professional or in a family. And we have terms in research that we use to describe some of these challenges. And we use the terms burnout or compassion fatigue. They may have slightly different meanings, but close enough for our, for our needs tonight. And really, this has to do with the cumulative, the accumulation of these work demands and stress that come along with caregiving. And the, the burnout and compassion fatigue then makes it harder for us to go on with our caregiving work. We also see secondary trauma when we are continuously exposed to the pain of other people. We ourselves sometimes begin to feel that pain as though we are experiencing it ourselves. So this often happens in clinical settings where people are, say, in an emergency room and they're seeing a trauma over and over and over again. But potentially the caregiver who sees the same difficulties day after day after day with um, with a, a family member who's ill um, is also witness to this sort of secondary trauma. So risk factors, what leads to more likely burnout or compassion fatigue, include this high amount of exposure. And in the workplace, we often look to problems like insufficient supervision and workplace conflict. So settings in the environment that are making it harder to do our, our job, to do our caregiving. And then just the high volume of work and long hours that we see both in professional and home settings uh, where a person isn't getting, any, isn't getting any respite. It's just continually coming at them. And what do we mean by burnout? I think we have a general concept of what that might mean, but it is this depleting of the coping resources, importantly, causing a delay in recovery. And so you can think of this as expending more energy than you can restore. So ordinarily, let's say, let's take the example of a nurse. Nurse goes on his or her shift, they work for a period of time. They do the difficult caregiving work. They leave their shift. They go home. They do restorative things. They play with their children. They cook a nutritious meal. They get to sleep. And they wake up going back to work feeling restored. They're ready to begin again. However, in cases with burnout, individuals have a greater need than they are able to restore before returning to that caregiving. So although they may have done restorative activities, they are in a state that is preventing them from feeling ready again to begin at the beginning, uh, to start that caregiving work again. And so burnout is really this sense where it would take more than the normal period and restorative activities between shifts to, to overcome the, the burnout they're experiencing. Does that make sense? You, also, I should have just said, you should ask questions anytime if something's not clear. 
And from the perspective of physicians, I mean, I think this is interesting when we're patients as well as when we're um, physicians and nurses and psychologists and so forth. Up to 60% of practicing physicians report burnout symptoms. This is a not that old paper uh, from JAMA, so a, a highly regarded uh, medical journal. And these symptoms can include just an emotional exhaustion, also something we call depersonalization. I think this is very useful in understanding some caregiver behavior. They become so overwhelmed that although they continue to go through the motions of caregiving, they're still writing prescriptions, they're still changing bedpans, they're doing the activities they need to, they begin to act as though this patient or the recipient of the care is an object. They're just going through the motions as though there were no interpersonal or emotional connection to that person um, because as a part of the consequence of burnout, as a way they're getting through what they have to do despite this burnout. And I think something that doesn't get talked about a lot but is very important is Another aspect of it is this low sense of accomplishment. So when a caregiver has burnout, one of the things you will notice is they seem to feel they're not doing enough, right? Or that what they're doing isn't meaningful or isn't important or isn't working, right? So many of us will have a tough day caregiving. And at the end of the day, we may feel frustrated or feel guilty or feel wish we had done something different. But at the same time, we're also able to reflect on, and we got through another day, everyone's laces got tied, dinner got on the table. You know, at the end of the day, I did get stuff done. And people, um, they, it may not have happened in an elegant way, but people know that I cared about them as I was doing that, right? When people have burnout, they tend to lose this sense of meaning in the work that they're doing. We know there are other consequences of burnout, especially in the professional setting. We see we can measure poor quality of care, including patients being more dissatisfied, but also an increase in medical errors. As people's emotional burnout happens, we see errors in, um, uh, in the behavior, in the decisions that doctors are making as well, and also this decreased ability to express empathy. But this term, compassion fatigue, or burnout, makes it sound almost as though you run out of compassion, as though you are given a fixed entity, a, a fixed quantity of compassion at birth, and at some point you might run out of it, right? Compassion fatigue. But I think that compassion is actually a part of our motivation. It motivates our clinical work and our caregiving. So you could think of compassion as simply a vantage point or an ongoing process, not something that can simply be finished, can end. Did you have a question? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. 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 Right. That's very interesting, and I'd be, I'd be interested to see what sort of um, 
what sort of research might be done on that. I only at the moment know that there is this connection and hopefully we can teach the professional caregivers, the doctors, more about this that helps them to understand why they're doing it in the first place. Because most of us who go into caregiving professions, including doctors, have literally gone into it in order to provide the best possible care. And yet they find themselves doing things they don't understand necessarily why they're doing them. So hopefully, I'm not sure what patients can do, but hopefully in working with doctors, um, we can help them to understand what's going on, what's behind their own behavior, and f help them to find skills and ways to, um, to react differently and to find this vantage point again, to refine this vantage point, which they had when they usually went into the profession in the first place. So burnout isn't really an end state after a, uh, some period of caregiving, but I think of it as a shifted vantage point. Fortunately, there are skills that we can learn. If we understand this state better, we can understand that ongoing process and moments at which you might be able to change the vantage point in that ongoing process. And that's some of what we're going to talk about tonight. But I would, I would repeat, this isn't just um, for professionals. This is for all of us who are providing care. Compassion is not a luxury. It is a necessity for the human being to survive. I think we can't run out of it in part because it is an integral part of life. And it turns out compassion is necessary for the person who's receiving care, but we learn more and more scientifically that providing care is beneficial to the person providing it as well. That people who provide care actually live longer and are often healthier than those who have no one that they need to be relied upon. Uh, in, uh, in studies, even giving elderly isolated adults a plant that requires watering and paying attention to actually improves their well-being by, by having to provide care for this other living being. So some of uh, the majority of what I'm going to talk to you about in terms of skills and understanding this uh, process that happens with uh, compassion fatigue or, or burnout came very much from the, a, a training that I did with um, Roshi Joan Halifax at the Upaya Zen Center in um, Santa Fe. Um, so there's a program there that they've been running every year for 20 odd years now called Being with Dying. And it's clinicians of all different sorts, doctors, chaplains, social workers, nurses, um, who come together to understand the, and learn these skills um, through meditative practices um, and through education. So many of you will know Al Kazniak in the community, uh, an emeritus professor from the psychology department. He is one of the faculty who talk about the neuroscience of compassion uh, at this training. But I mentioned it because I'm heavily relying on Roshi Joan Halifax and a, a nurse named Cinda Rushton. Um, so these are not from, generated from my own research. So why do we give care? How does that start? And the motivations for that 
often come in two flavors. The one we think of more often is that we're motivated to provide care because we have empathic concern for someone we see. That innate empathy that begins early in childhood and can be seen in every culture of the world is a very much an other-focused emotion. It occurs when we see another person suffering. And we, we are naturally, it evokes empathy, compassion, and tenderness in us as we confront that situation. And this is motivating us then to empathic concern. But there's another thing that happens sometimes when we see another person suffering. And that is personal distress. We ourselves may be motivated to help relieve another person's suffering, but the focus can be on ourselves in the sense that watching another person suffer is terrible. It's very distressing. It makes us anxious and uncomfortable and fearful and sad. And so there's a way in which we may be also motivated by our own distress to help the other person. Now, in both of those instances, caregiving may happen, right? In both instances, the person may receive care. But the motivation is slightly different. And this becomes important as we go through the process of what happens in an empathic interaction. Does that distinction sort of make sense? Both can be happening simultaneously. No reason both can't be going on. Here's the problem. When there's personal distress, there's a lot of physiological arousal in you, right? In the self, so to speak. And when that caregiver arousal isn't regulated, we have that personal distress, that stress level continues. As we watch that situation and we get more and more upset about it, inside we are having a lot of physiological arousal. In this arousal, if it continues to remain high, ultimately, we only have so much energy. Ultimately, that arousal leads to burnout, physiological burnout. What's notable is that if we think about, if we're aware of that physiological arousal, there may be things we can do for emotion regulation that may help to decrease our own physiological arousal. And that, in turn, can help us avoid burnout. So a focus on compassion could be one type of emotion regulation. And meditation practices provide us an opportunity to develop skills, bringing us back to this compassion viewpoint over and over again. When you're bouncing between hospital rooms, when you have 15 minutes to see a patient, or when your mother has uh, has left the house and is missing for the umpteenth time, we may, we may feel that there is no other way to respond, that we simply respond in the moment because of that pressure. With meditation, we're given an opportunity to practice in a different environment, in a more controlled environment, to practice our viewpoint. But the whole point of practicing that is so that in those moments where we're under a lot of pressure, 
we, it's ingrained in us. We can recall that viewpoint because we've practiced it. So we can recall that viewpoint and apply it in the moment when we are feeling under so much pressure uh, in a way that may uh, only come about if we've practiced these skills. So personal distress. Let me give you a little bit more detail. It might help you to recognize this in yourself. So personal distress, we see this person who is in need of help, and we feel this uncomfortable personal distress, this anxiety, this fear. And there are some very typical fear responses that human beings have, right? We, confronted with a fear-provoking situation, we fight, we flee, or we freeze. These are very evolutionarily old responses to fear, right? Animals do this. You see the rabbit who freezes. You see the, the dog who lashes out in a situation that provokes it. Uh, you see the, the, the cat who runs away in the face of a noise or a, uh, a startling situation. And human beings are frankly no different. Now, we can have more nuanced responses, but these are still pretty typical reactions when we're afraid of something. Fight, flight, and freeze. So I just want to walk you through one of these evolving situations to give you an example of what that might look like in humans, right? So I'm going to give you two variations of this type of scenario. There's some event, right? Your child has uh, fallen down and skinned their knee. Um, your patient uh, has come in with some sort of a side effect of medication. Whatever the triggering event is, this person is in need of compassion and uh, of caregiving. When we witness that, all sorts of emotions get triggered. Empathy, tenderness, sadness, guilt, remorse, anger. Oh, the range is, is infinite of emotions that we might experience in response to that triggering event. And that's normal. Emotions are a summary of information of what's happening in the world and how it's relevant to us and what, sort of trying to give us information about what we might do about it. So all sorts of emotions come up. Now, in one scenario, we might have this personal distress, this empathic over-arousal, that these emotions may lead to this physiological arousal in a person. And this may lead to some of these, what we might call self-focused behaviors. So, Fear leading to flight and fight and freeze can look like things like avoidance or abandonment. So this is the overwhelmed physician who's doing rounds in the hospital and knows that a patient that he hasn't visited should really get a visit. And he thinks, I'll do it at the end of the shift. right? We can think of that as a, in one sense as flight, right? This is, this is distressing. I feel really upset when I'm in there. I'll deal with it later. You can think of that as a version of flight. There's also, uh, I think, a connection that I made at this training that I'd never made before was this idea that 
the sort of moral outrage that we have in situations. Um, I'm, in a, I'm a nurse in a situation where um, I'm not given enough resources to handle this patient, to give this patient what they need. And I am morally outraged by the administration that would not give me enough resources to do my job, which may be perfectly true. But you can see how, in a way, that could be considered part of the fight response. right? Now, we'll get back to how useful this is in a moment, but just bear with me. That could be an example of fight or flight that we see there in response to some of the over-arousal that happens after a triggering event. Now, the problem here is that these types of behaviors tend to lead to burnout and secondary stress responses. Because now your body's also all activated, right? Your heart rate is going faster. This requires more effort and energy. Let's look through a slightly different version of this scenario. We're back to the triggering event. Same event, say. Uh, child with skinned knee, patient with um, side effect from a, from a medication that you've prescribed that they're coming in. Um, and we get any of these same emotions, or a whole range of them usually, that get activated. Now, what if we go to emotion regulation instead? Instead of empathic over-arousal, what if we go to emotion regulation? This tends to get us toward other-focused behavior. Not what will relieve the personal distress, but what will provide the most compassionate response for the patient, from the patient's perspective or the family member's perspective. And these types of compassionate actions we'll talk about that we can practice during uh, uh, skill training, when we, when we practice, when we potentially uh, meditate and, and work through our ways of uh, regulating our emotions, experiencing equanimity and, um, uh, and acceptance of, of suffering in the world, these other focused behaviors very often lead to, in the person who's experiencing them, a sense of integrity and resilience. I've responded to this patient in a way that may not be perfect, but I think they have the experience of being heard, of being understood, of being cared for. And that makes me, the clinician or the caregiver, feel better about what I've done. It may give me a sense of resilience. OK, I could do that again, right? I can do that next time the patient comes in. I can do that the next time my child throws a tantrum. Uh, these types of um, other focused compassionate behaviors end up in a very different physiological arousal state in the caregiver. And that sense of integrity and resilience often comes along with a sense of self-compassion because the the meditations that we use, the, the, in particular, compassion meditation, isn't just about compassion for others, but it's compassion for ourselves as well. We are taking on a difficult job as a caregiver. And I like this um, description of sort of three aspects of self-compassion that Neff puts forward. There's 
kindness, extending kindness and understanding to oneself rather than judgment and self-criticism. But this is one of my favorite parts, common humanity. Seeing one's experiences as part of a larger human experience rather than seeing them as separating and isolating. So if we have, mother has forgotten something again, right? And we react in anger and we yell. The reality is in good relationships, in good people, people have been yelling when they shouldn't or when it's not helpful for millennia. And when we do it, we can feel like, oh, I shouldn't do that. I'm a bad person for doing this. I should be more tolerant. And you can see how that's very separating and isolating. I should have done this. I'm not up to a standard. Or we can think, I wonder how many people today around the world just yelled at their mother because she forgot for the umpteenth time and I just couldn't take it anymore. And wow, that's a lot of people that I'm in the same boat with right now. And I think that gives you a different sense of self-compassion for what you've just done. And may lead to different behavior on your part as well, but just the sense of giving yourself a break, of being kind about it, because you're not alone. Everyone is doing this. Everyone is doing the best that they can and, and not always living up to what they wish they were doing. And then the final part of self-compassion she talks about is mindfulness. So allowing yourself to be aware of the thoughts and feelings that are painful, things you've witnessed, things you've done, experiences you've had, and allowing yourself to have a balanced awareness of them, being aware of them, accepting that they've happened, accepting that you've had a reaction, without over-identifying with them, accepting them and letting them go again. They have happened. They're not happening now. They have happened. And you can accept that that, that, that is true while still moving on to the next moment. So mindful, so this is just really a description of what I meant, this mindfulness, this sense of moment-to-moment -moment awareness, but also a non-judgmental awareness. This has happened. Full stop, <laughs> right? But it can be cultivated by paying attention to the present moment, and often we do this by sitting down and, and practicing for a period of time, by reacting to the present, I'm sorry, by experiencing the present moment without reacting to it, without judging it, and in an open-hearted way, by practicing that moment-to-moment -moment when there's basically almost nothing going on, except your mind is you know, going a million miles a minute, by practicing that again and again in the moment, then when you're in a moment where a lot is going on, you might also be able to recapture a little bit of that, right? And say, yes, there's a lot going on, and you know what? In the next moment, it's going to be different, so I'm just going to go with it here. And do not judge what's happening, not react, per se, to what's happening, but to find some equanimity, to find some balance, to allow myself to breathe and calm a little bit, to do that emotion regulation. 
that may ultimately mean that our behavior, what we do next, may be very different than when we're coming at it because we're afraid, because we're in fight or flight or, or freeze mode. I love this uh, quote by William James. My experience is what I agree to attend to. Only those items I notice shape my mind. Perhaps by practicing this loving kindness, attending to loving kindness for others, for ourselves, over and over again, it allows us to notice it more often in more situations around us. So compassion meditation I've been referring to um, comes in a couple of different flavors, but one of the most common practiced here and in present day is called metta or loving kindness meditation. When we teach this to caregivers, often clinicians, it may allow them to have a strength and a perspective to acknowledge pain and suffering, but also to develop a transformative relationship to it with insight and with regulation of our, of our emotions. We sometimes say right action comes out of right thought, but right thought comes first. Right? So what we're choosing to do in our caregiving may be very much affected by our ability to pause and reflect, even briefly, accept the situation as it is, and then choose the next behavior that we want to make, rather than only reacting out of this physiological arousal that we experience. Meta-meditation has a, a progression that it uses as a way of helping the practitioner, the person doing it, um, to build this skill of compassion. You may feel compassion or loving kindness for yourself, develop that. You may use images or phrases that you may repeat over and over. And this may, over time, stimulate this feeling of loving kindness in a way that isn't accessible at first when you first practice it or you first start this type of meditation. These are some of the phrases that I mentioned that people often repeat as a way to stimulate this self-compassion. May I be safe. May I be peaceful. May I be healthy. May I live with ease. So why do meditation? And, and meditation comes in lots of, lots of versions. Meditation doesn't have to be only Buddhist tradition meditations. Many of our prayers um, from, from Christian traditions, from Islamic traditions, prayers often have this meditative quality as well. So why do we do this? Why do we practice this? By expressing these intentions or aspirations concretely, we can connect with our beliefs and our ideals more deeply. We can remind ourselves why we've gotten into this caregiving situation in the first place, right? Remind ourselves, what is my aspiration? What is the meaning of doing this for me? And by having that practice in the back of your mind, as you go through your daily life, it can help to remind you why you're doing this. 
and develop a stronger sense of conviction, that sense of meaningfulness for what you're doing, a feeling of integrity that this is important work. One of the prayers I think is most useful in many of these caregiving situations is what we call the serenity prayer. Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Because we choose to sit and meditate, that doesn't mean we also don't choose to act. But often the sitting comes first in order for the last part to happen, in order for us to have the wisdom of how to respond in situations. I want to give you one quick, um, if I can. I don't actually see the time. Ah, oh, there it is. Have I gone? I've gone over, haven't I? No? All right, great. I want to give you one example um, that may make it a little more concrete for you. Um, uh, shortly after I did the Being with Dying training, which is a pretty intense, it's seven days um, of, of meditations um, and training and classes, and it's an intense experience and a wonderful one. Um, but quite ironically, uh, a couple of months after I had done that training, my father, who had been in assisted living for quite some time, um, became ill, had a heart attack, went into the hospital, and I went up um, to Montana, where he lived, to spend what would be his last few days together. And as I was there, and I, and I have hospice training, so what was happening was not particularly new to me, but the context, of course, was completely different. And there was a moment, I had the great fortune of being uh, in Montana in this tiny rural hospital where you could, uh, you could have a hospital room and a hospital bed, but people would um, respect your wishes for quiet and no beeping machines. And so we were in a hospital technically, um, but really it felt more like uh, a family room. So we're in this room, and the doctor had warned me that at some point, um, my father's heart would change and he would experience this change and we would know and we should bring more pain medication on when that happened. And so, you know, you hear this, but it's pretty dry and uh, formulaic. That doesn't necessarily mean much to you, although frankly, I was glad I had been warned. And so I'm sitting there with him and my father was pretty out of it at this point. And I knew that this had happened. Suddenly he seemed very uncomfortable, even in pain, I would say. He wanted to roll off his back, which presumably was because something about the heart had shifted or changed. And he was in a lot of distress. And he didn't have a lot of language to communicate that, but you could tell. And so I ran and got the nurse, and she said, it's going to take me a while to get the medication that the doctor has suggested for this. And I thought, oh god he is in pain now so i went back into the room and i was sitting there with him and i thought of this training and i thought you know in this moment as i'm sitting there holding his hand i could run out of this room and go down to the pharmacy and insist that they give it to me now or yell at a nurse and insist that they go and get it now or avoid. I could get on my phone and look up on Google what would be, you know, the best way to what's going on and how I should handle this situation or um, any of these other possible reactions that would be a lot about making myself feel better in this situation. 
feeling like I was doing something for him. But instead, I was able to recall some of these meditations, remind myself to breathe, <laughs> and sit with him and stroke his hair and look at him so he knew someone was there. He knew someone knew what was going on with him, even if it wasn't changing. Nonetheless, they knew what was going on, that I knew someone he trusted. And he could feel other sensations, presumably, other than just the heart, um, as I was stroking his head. And it was a difficult 20 minutes. It didn't mean that he didn't suffer during that 20 minutes, but it did mean that I was more at peace. And I can tell you that because I was more at peace, I'm fairly certain he was more at peace than he would have been if I'd reacted in any of those other ways. So maybe that gives you a more concrete example of, of what I mean about this, um, something that you can think about applying um, in your own caregiving situations that might work for you. So thank you very much. So we do fill in some time if there's any questions for Dr. O'Connor or about um, her practice or any questions for Leslie, if there's any questions for Dr. O'Connor about something she said. Thank you for sharing that personal story, mm. Dan. That, mm. was, that was amazing. Mm -hmm. Any questions for, yes? Well, is the same theory applied to somebody who feels back into a situation? They're not necessarily there. It's because they're the only one that can be there and yeah. they have to be there. It's not. So how do you, how do you self? I think I missed the very beginning part of the question, sorry. My mother's 94, yeah. and she's getting older, yeah. so somebody in the family needs to take care uh, of her yes. because there's not enough money to put yeah. her yeah. anywhere else, yeah. so you, know, you begin to get resentful, yes. maybe, your yes. whole life has changed, you Absolutely. don't have a life, how do you fix that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is a question many people, I think, are engaged in right now, right? We end up having to take on the healthcare ourselves. I don't know that you can fix it. <laughs> I think that in the day-to-day -day of it, your experience can be different. So I think there can be ways in which having more self-compassion can allow you to continue the day after day, accepting that you feel resentful. That's just how you feel, right? And you probably also feel a million other things at the same time. And so having the capacity to say, ah, yes, I recognize that resentful feeling. Oh, wait, here's a new feeling. I also feel grateful or whatever it is, by sort of staying in that moment, sometimes it prevents you at least from getting stuck in one emotion that you may not care for very much and allows you at least to go through the different experiences as they're happening, rather than thinking of it as all one thing. It doesn't mean that you won't, it doesn't mean that it won't be difficult. But it may change your motivation or your energy level in being able to deal with it, is the hope. Did you have a question back here? Or did I? Oh, you're just taking a class. Oh. <laughs> you just bought something. Yes. Yeah. 
my son has a serious mental illness. Yeah. Oh, that's a lot of caregiving. Yeah, and he, he's 37, well, going to be 37, and mm -hmm. he's in the state hospital. He's been there over 11 years. Yeah. I'm the person that he trusts the most. Yeah. And always has. Yeah. My husband, when he was alive, was the other person. But sometimes what his fixed delusions yeah. wear me out. Yes. He keeps telling me this guy's going to break his neck. Yeah. And that's his belief, and I know I can't change it. Yeah. But yeah. I did, you know, like I said, it was a staff member. I said, well... He's in that job because he wants to help people. Yeah. And I, I sometimes it's like, please don't say it anymore. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. This delusion that just makes no sense and that you've dealt with again and again and again and again. Which isn't going to change, probably. I mean, no, it's not. right? And so there's a level on which I can tell that you've accepted that. And at the same time, it's exhausting, right? And so the question is, what things can you do to accept that that's true, both that it isn't going to change and that it's exhausting, right? And feel connected to other people who are also doing this exhausting work. I do talk to friends every now Ah, that's good. Well. Yeah. It was last night. He said, yeah. well, he broke my neck before. Right. And then he said, <laughs> and he said well, I got to go. The Holy Spirit told me I have to go back to bed. <laughs> that was okay. I didn't say what he wanted to hear. He didn't like being challenged. Yeah. He had to get out of the situation. Yeah. But I think part of it is being aware of your own experience of that. As you're there, you know he needs you. You know he needs to talk or whatever it is he, he needs in the moment. The question is, can you find a way to breathe and instead of reacting out of just frustration, right, or just anger or just wanting to freeze up and not talk anymore, is there a way to sort of bring yourself back into, okay, now we're in this moment, right? What do I want to say now? You know? I'm always constantly having to think of what I'm going to yeah. say because I never know what's going yeah. to happen. Yeah. I think finding ways to try and reduce that arousal in us, right? And sometimes practicing when you're not on the phone can be really useful. Okay, learning a, a breathing meditation that then you may not be able to do it full scale while you're on the phone, but you may be able to bring back enough of it to feel a little calmer as you're then responding. It's a possibility. I couldn't have when I hung up though about laughing about Yeah. We have a question over here. Yes. I was just wondering how often and how how deeply do you uh, meditate? Mm. The, to be effective. The question was how often and how deeply do you meditate to be effective? Me personally or a caregiver? <laughs> right. Ah, oh, that's a good question. That's an excellent question. Have there been any studies to suggest that there's, a matter, there's an amount of time that matters for the clinician or something? There was a study done um, actually by one of the faculty members from Being With Dying who's an oncologist. And they had um, 
done a study where they looked at both medical residents and also doctors who are in oncology. So uh, because of cancer treatment are frequently confronted with dying patients or more frequently than in some specialties. And they did find that regardless of what the practice was and regardless of sort of the length of time they'd been doing it, they did find less burnout in those individuals who had some sort of practice um, compared to those who had not. So some evidence that it matters and not really clear yet if the amount of time also matters or the amount of um, daily practice matters. But I think starting to be enough indications that it matters that we actually provide this type of training more and more often now for caregivers of all sorts. Um, when medical schools start to see the importance of it, that they can keep people in the profession, they can keep them um, doing good work instead of just working, um, I think they tend to be more motivated to provide that kind of training along with all the other types of training that doctors get. As a follow-up to that, mm. what uh, resources or courses are available in the community for compassion meditation? Mm, mm. Well, I can tell you for sure <laughs> that the Center for Compassion <laughs> Studies, <laughs> what's that? We're so glad you asked. Yes, <laughs> funny you should ask, no. Um, <laughs> Taking one of your classes at White <laughs> Actually, Leslie will be better at answering this than I am because we'll, we'll, she. We'll review that in a minute because we're going to finish with that very topic. Oh, very good. So I'll take the one more question. I think you had a question. <clears throat> so, as a social worker yeah. in the hospital, um, I don't know if other social workers feel this way, but I often feel guilty. Yeah. Um, like just today. Yeah. You know, talking to a woman who has already been out of work for two weeks, mm -hmm. is facing surgery, will be out of work for another three weeks. The player doesn't offer short-term disability. She has a 16-year-old daughter. Yeah. Um, there's nobody else, really, that can help them financially. Yeah. I can only give some resources. Mm -hmm. I know what's going to happen when she call, makes those phone calls. Yeah. She's going to be told that there are, are waiting, there are people waiting to get yeah. the assistance that, you know. Yeah. And, you know, I, I looked at her and I said, I'm really sorry. I'm sorry yeah. that I can't provide any more to you. For yeah, this. yeah. Um, but it's not just that. I, I sometimes feel guilty, you know, walking into a room where yeah. there's a young patient who has metastatic, metastatic cancer. Yeah. I feel guilty that I'm, that I'm healthy. Yeah. And um, I don't know what to do yeah. about that, yeah. especially in the moment that it's yeah. happening. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, in this training, they, they taught us sort of a mnemonic, um, but the gist of it um, was this idea of if you can be aware of that in the moment, aware of your own reaction, ah, this is what I'm feeling. I feel really guilty about this. Checking in and seeing how you think the other person might be feeling, partly that can help just take you out of yourself for a moment, right? they may be feeling hopeful, they might be feeling sad, they might be feeling anything, right? But you suddenly are in contact with how they're actually feeling in that moment. The idea that then if you can take a beat to just breathe and bring your arousal down at least a little bit in that moment, that often the right action will come to you because of this innate compassion that we have. And so saying to someone, 
I am so sorry that you're going through this in a moment where they feel broken can be a huge gift to them, right? Right. (laughs) But you would be able to tell in that moment, right, if it was the right thing. And then more importantly, I think that when you're able to do that, when you're able to go away and practice some self-compassion as well, that guilt may not be the only reaction that you have, right? That it is meaningful what you're doing. You may not have all the answers, but you are there with them in that moment. And that is hugely important. Sometimes by practicing this self-compassion, that will come to us at moments we need it, right? Saying, ah, you really biffed that one, but overall, you're doing pretty good. You know what I mean? That may stick with you as well. Um, So that's what I have.